0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, if you've ever been to a, a conference before, uh, where there's a, a guest speaker, uh, there is generally an introduction that uh, lists some of their accomplishments or credentials, that kind of thing. Uh, some introductions are are quite extravagant and take several minutes to go through, while others are are more plain and simple. Over the past few weeks, the Apostle John has introduced us to uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is eternal, is the one who is with God and who is God, the one through whom all things were made, the one who is light and life, The one who overcomes the darkness, the one through whom we have the right to become children of God, the one who came and dwelt among us, the one who is full of grace and truth. Now, there's an introduction. And unlike any that you will see at any kind of conference on this earth. In our text this morning, we're going to see another introduction of sorts. After concluding his theologically rich prologue, the Apostle John now turns his attention to the witness of John the Baptist. In keeping with the theme of John's gospel, John the Baptist doesn't make much of himself, but instead he makes much of Jesus John the Baptist doesn't focus on who he is or what he has done, but instead he focuses on Christ, on who Christ is, that is the Lamb of God, and what Christ came to do, and that is to take away the sin of the world. This morning we're going to see two things in our text. We're going to see the messenger in verses 19 to 28, and we're going to see the message in verses 29 to 34. As John the Baptist introduces Jesus Christ to us, we're going to be confronted with whether or not we're going to listen to his witness. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me as I read for us from John chapter one, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. Uh, for the sake of context, John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, they were both from the tribe of Levi. Uh, They were elderly, and they were childless. Uh, One day, Zechariah was serving in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. He had been chosen by Lot to perform uh, his priestly duties, which included the uh, service of burning incense, considered to be one of the most uh, sacred of all the priestly duties. But on this particular day, as Zechariah was ministering in the temple, suddenly an angel appeared. That didn't normally happen. Zechariah was troubled by what he saw. After all, it had been roughly 400 years since God had spoken to his people through the prophet Malachi, considered to be the 400 silent years. But now, now God had sent an angel to this humble priest. In Luke 1, verses 13 to 17, the angel says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is being heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn away or he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord people prepared. Now, apparently, Zechariah didn't fully believe the words of the angel because he was struck dumb until the birth of the child because of his unbelief. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. Uh, when Elizabeth was... In the fifth month of her pregnancy, an angel visited Mary and said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's in Luke 1, verse 31. And when the two women met, for they were relatives, Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's Luke 1, verses 42 to 44. But of course, the story doesn't end there either. Uh, John the Baptist was eventually born. And as he was being circumcised, Zechariah wrote down on a tablet that his name would be John. Just as the angel had said to him. And at that moment, Zechariah's tongue was loosed and he sang these words, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. No pressure, John. That, of course, was Luke 1, verses 76 to 79. Now, when we officially meet uh, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, uh, he had been preaching and baptizing for some time. According to the Gospels, large multitudes had come to hear him and be baptized. On one such occasion, John the Baptist was visited by Jesus, who asked John to baptize him. Now at first John refused, but then of course, he deferred to Jesus' request. And as he baptized Jesus, he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and he heard God say, "This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." Matthew chapter three verse 17. What a moment! That must have been for John the Baptist. But of course, it just gets better for him. And of course, all of this draws the attention of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who have now sent a delegation of sorts uh, with what we might call religious and political motivations. They wanted to know who John the Baptist was. They wanted to know what he was doing so this brings us to the first thing we see in our text, and that is the messenger. We see the messenger. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The scene kind of plays out like a courtroom drama. You know, you have these Investigators who have been sent to kind of cross examine the witness. These priests and Levites, they're not, they're not there out of curiosity. No, they're there on official Jewish business. In verse 24, in fact, uh, John writes this parenthetical note. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were experts in religious matters. They were strict and precise when it came to the law of God. They controlled what was taught in the synagogues. And they kept the people under surveillance and influenced them with their propaganda. This explains why they were so suspicious of Jesus. John the Baptist knew exactly what these investigators from Jerusalem wanted to know. They they wanted to know whether or not he claimed to be the Christ. Now, that title, the Christ, it, it carried with it expectations of a warrior king of God, one who would be filled with the Holy Spirit and would lead the nation of Israel against the Romans who currently occupied their territory. Any illusion. To such a claim from John the Baptist would have caused the zealots in the crowd, those who sought to overthrow the Roman government by force, to rise up and fight. Thus, in verse twenty, John the Baptist readily admits, "I am not the Christ." His confession is emphatic. You. You see him kind of re- repeat his his phrase here. Uh, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." He he really does not want to give any impression that he was the Christ. Look at verse twenty one. They then asked him, "You know what? What then? Are, are you Elijah?" Now there's a reason why they're asking this question. Their their question is rooted in the the promise made through the prophet Malachi. In Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6, the the conclusion of the Old Testament. The Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. you have seen that before lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how the Old Testament ends. But now they they ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And and the reason why they're asking is because Matthew and Mark, in in their gospel accounts, they describe John the Baptist as wearing uh, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, which is the exact same apparel worn by Elijah the prophet. You see that in 2 Kings 1, verse 8. And we've already seen in Luke 1, verse 17, how John the Baptist was to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord and people prepared, which is almost a direct quote from Malachi. Moreover, Jesus himself identified John the Baptist as the promised Elijah. In Matthew 11, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And yet, what does John the Baptist say in verse 21? I am not. He denies being the coming Elijah. So so these investigators from Jerusalem, they ask him a second question. Okay, then are are you the prophet? And again, their their question is, is rooted in the promise of a prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses says to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So if he's claiming to be the prophet... There are some serious implications here. There was a belief and a hope that a new prophet would be sent to the assistance of of Israel. But again, John the Baptist denies being the prophet. He simply answers them, no. Now by this time, the investigators from Jerusalem are, are almost fed up. In verse 22, they flat out ask him, okay, then who are you? And it's here where we see why they're pressing him so hard. They, they continue. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And look at how John responds in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist uh, is quoting from Isaiah forty verses three to five, mostly three, but kind of carries over into the the next two verses. A voice cries in the wilderness: Prepare the way of the Lord; make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together? the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so through, throughout this this cross-examination, John the Baptist is simply saying, I'm no more than a voice. I, I'm not the Christ. I'm preparing the way for the Christ. I am a prophet sure who is preparing the way for the prophets? I, I'm nobody. But these priests and Levites who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they're not satisfied. They they pose a further question to John the Baptist. In verse 25, they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? To which John replies in verses 26 to 27. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What humility. According to John the Baptist, Jesus is is incomparably greater than him. I I mean, we've already seen this in the prologue. John chapter one, verses six to eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe it through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Right in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Excuse me. John the Baptist explains emphatically that he's not even worthy enough to perform probably the most demeaning task assigned to household servants, and that is caring for their master's feet. Some ancient sources considered the the task too demeaning for servants to perform for their masters, and that such work was, was more befitting of a slave. But John the Baptist, he's he's reversing the, the social norm in order to magnify the greatness of Christ. He would rather be a slave for Christ if that's what it means. And, and this is amazing, considering the fact that John the Baptist could have easily talked about you know, all of his accomplishments and all of his credentials. Right? Instead, you know, he, he could have. He could have talked about how he had been Nazarite from birth. You know, which meant that he never cut his hair, never touched a dead body, never drank from the fruit of the vine. You know, his, his spiritual acumen. Uh, he could have talked about how he was filled with the Holy Spirit from before his, his birth. That was pretty pretty special. He could have talked about his solitary life of self-denial in the wilderness, you know, the grasshoppers he ate and how he dressed and all that kind of stuff. I mean, even Jesus himself would go on to say, concerning John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Matthew 11, verse 11. John the Baptist could have appealed to all of his accomplishments and credentials to build himself up. Now he he was faced with, with the temptation to make much of himself. But he would have none of it. John the Baptist would later say, he must increase, but I must decrease. John 3, verse 30. The Apostle Paul, following the example of John the Baptist in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. The servant of Christ does not exalt himself or herself, but rather they exalt and magnify Christ. I shared this illustration recently, but its, it's truth is worth noting again. Uh, One evening, the great conductor Arturo Toscanini conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a brilliant performance at the end of which the audience went absolutely wild. They clapped, they whistled, they stamped their feet, absolutely caught up in the the greatness of the moment. As Toscanini stood there, he bowed and he bowed and he bowed. Then he acknowledged his orchestra, who did the same. When the ovation Finally began to subside, Toscanini turned and looked intently at his musicians. He was almost out of control as he whispered, Gentlemen! Gentlemen! The orchestra leaned forward to listen. In a fiercely enunciated whisper, Toscanini said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. Well, That was an extraordinary admission since Toscanini was blessed with an enormous ego. He added, gentlemen, you are nothing. Well, this was nothing new for them. They had heard the same message before the rehearsal. But Beethoven, said Toscanini in a tone of admiration, is everything, everything, everything. This is the attitude we need Toward ourselves and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I am nothing, you are nothing, but He is everything. Amen. This was John the Baptist's attitude, and it's the attitude of every messenger of Christ. This brings us to the second thing we see in our text, and that is the message. We see the message. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One commentator writes, In one sentence, we have the essence of the Christian message. Jesus Christ, the word, the light, the life. You know, we've seen a lot about Jesus in the, in the prologue. Everything that Jesus Christ is, he is also the Lamb of God who reconciles the world to God. This, this phrase, behold the Lamb of God, it, it, this would have resonated with Jewish ears, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of Genesis 22 who was provided by God to be our substitute. He is the Lamb of Exodus 12 who took the judgment of God on our behalf. He is the Lamb of Leviticus 14 who would be killed as a guilt offering so that we might be cleansed. He is the Lamb of Isaiah 53, who was led to the slaughter and who opened not his mouth. He is the Lamb of Revelation, who is slain, but who also conquered the forces of evil and who rules from the throne of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just like John the Baptist, our message must be the sacrificial death of Christ. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. uh, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Verse three goes like this. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Tell all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. All from a fountain filled with blood. Now There have been many over the years who have criticized William Cowper and his hymn seeking to move away from the blood of the atonement. Now, why, why does it have to be so grotesque? But this is our hope. This is our hope that that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. There are those who don't understand this. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 says that the message of the cross of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to, to Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who are saved Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's what the cross means to us who believe. Right? The church is only the church because of a crucified Christ. It matters not otherwise. In John, in, in 1 John 3, verse 5, rather, the apostle John put it this way You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Yes, Christ came to give us abundant life. Yes, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil through, through healings and, and miracles. But the reason Christ appeared, the reason the word became flesh, was to take away sin. The gospel centers upon Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial death of Christ is the essence of our message. If we lose that, we don't have good news of great joy for all people. Now, now, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what does he mean by the world? Does he say that every person in this world is saved? No. He's, he's saying that every person in the world will be saved if they believe in Jesus, if they put their trust in this dying Lamb. The, the high priest Caiaphas uh, would speak prophetically like this He says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And, of course, he's, he's speaking uh, of Christ in, in John 11, verses 49 to 50. And uh, the apostle John uh, adds for us, and very helpful, John, that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John 11, verses 51 to 52. So in other words, Jesus Christ would die, not just for the Jews, but for all those scattered among the nations who have believed in Jesus and who who have become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, we saw in the prologue. In Revelation 5, verse 9, John sees the four living creatures and the 24 elders singing a new song to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And their song goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." For those who believe in Jesus, their sin is taken away by the Lamb of God fully, finally, and forever. That's the good news of the gospel. One of our kids this week at Piano Lessons was was playing the the song, uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb, Little Lamb, Little Lamb. Mary Had a Little Lamb, Its Fleece Was White as Snow. And I had my computer and I was, you know, I was working on, on, uh, on my sermon. And I heard that and I thought, well, that's, that's providential. Maybe a little out of context, but providential nonetheless, in that the Virgin Mary really did have a little lamb. The lamb of God, who really was whiter than snow. He was perfect yet who really did take our sins upon himself on the cross. That if you believed in Jesus, this lamb is yours. This lamb is yours. In the Christmas episode of the show, The Chosen, a number of years ago, uh, there's a shepherd who is crippled and, and is raising a little lamb with a blemish. And when he brings the lamb to the temple for the offering, the priest mockingly rejects him and his lamb. The shepherd then enters a synagogue because he loves to hear the stories of the prophets about the coming Messiah. But when the rabbi sees that he has a wound on his arm from falling down earlier that day, he's kicked out of the synagogue. The shepherd returns to Bethlehem where the other shepherds force him to eat alone because he doesn't fit in with them. Suddenly, an angel appears to them announcing the birth of the Messiah that they had spent their whole lives looking forward to. And so he and the the rest of the shepherds, they run to Bethlehem to to see the baby Jesus, after which they they go and tell everyone about what they had seen and heard. And at this point, uh, this shepherd runs into the same priest who turned away Uh, he and his lamb earlier that day. The priest says to him, I told you not to come back here. So where is it? Have you found a spotless lamb for sacrifice? And the shepherd smiles because he had indeed found that sacrificial lamb. But in a, in a truer sense, in a more real sense than the priest could have ever imagined. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is truly good news, great joy for all people. John continues his witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 32 to 34, he bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, the prophet Isaiah says, the, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This, this is what John the Baptist saw that day the Jordan River. By by his witness, John the Baptist emphasizes, once again, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, and he's certainly not the Christ. He is simply one who sees and who testifies to what he has seen. And the same is true for us. Jesus is the spirit anointed deliverer of God's people. He is the Christ. He is the servant upon whom God would put his spirit, Isaiah 42, verse 1. He is the one who announces the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, Isaiah 61, verse 1. He is the guarantee of the promise of God to his people in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus was simultaneously an attestation of who Jesus was and an announcement of what Jesus had come to do. This is what John the Baptist was sent to reveal to Israel and to the world. And the question is, will we believe his witness? Notice that this understanding to testify uh, about what he had seen and, and heard, that doesn't come from him naturally. That, that comes from God. John the Baptist is saying, my, my testimony about Jesus it doesn't come from what I know about him. Because they probably would have grown up together. But rather, God told me what to say about Jesus. That's what he's saying. And, 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 and here's the thing. You, you don't have to believe John the Baptist's message. You don't have to believe his, his testimony concerning the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world. But in doing so, you're not simply rejecting the message of John the Baptist, you're rejecting the message of God. And if you're wrong... And this is this is it, folks. If you're wrong, you will miss out on the only one who can save you from the penalty of your sin against the holy God. Right? God is the main actor in this narrative. The entire ministry of John the Baptist, from beginning to end, is of God. It's God working behind the scenes to make himself known. God reveals himself to John the Baptist so that John the Baptist might reveal him to Israel and to the world, ultimately. And the same is true for us. God has made himself known to us so that we would make him known to the world. If we have believed in Jesus, then we are to live our lives for Jesus. Jesus announcing his message of grace and proclaiming his coming judgment. Yes, there is judgment. And if we have not yet believed in Jesus, then we need to decide whether or not we're going to listen to the witness, listen to the testimony of John the Baptist. We're going to listen to his message. You see, everyone in this room is a sinner by nature, deserving of God's righteous and just wrath. There is only one way to have your sins forgiven, and that is by believing in Jesus Christ as the glorious Lamb of God. In John 8, verse 24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So the question is, is Jesus Christ your lamb? Has he taken away your sin because of not? And believe in Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. I right? believe in Jesus. And, and, and then you can say with John in 1 John 1 verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has cleansed you from all sin. You can say that if you put your trust in Him today. This is no ordinary introduction. No. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe in Him, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a rich privilege that we can be your sons and daughters, that we can know your only begotten son, the son you did not spare, but gave him up for us to take away the sin of the world. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to us. Thank you for the blood of Christ, which makes us whiter than snow. We thank you for this Jesus who paid it all. We ask for the, the same humility you gave to John the Baptist. Help us to see ourselves as nothing and to see Christ as everything. We pray this, our God and Father, through Jesus Christ, the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, Three and one. Amen.